Welcome to our 28th Set the Month in Motion monthly podcast and forum produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. My name is Tanisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO here at the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. I would like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land on which we gather, the Wajak people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Well, we're just off the back of the Fremantle Business Awards 2021, where we celebrated our past and our present, the diversity of business in our port region and the networks between our greater Fremantle business community as we plan for a new future. Today, we will hear from four of these innovative local companies on their survival skills, how they create new opportunities and find business growth. The journey to business success is a different experience for each business owner and some pathways are easier than others. This time last year, I quoted Hope Wilson, a senior marketing specialist, a global firm of architects, designers, engineers and planners, Skidmore, Owings and Merrill. She provides a great definition of business success, as told to Business News Daily, where she says success is running a profitable firm that conducts business with honesty and integrity, makes meaningful contributions to the communities it serves and nurtures high quality, balanced lives for its employees. A business own, as business owners, we must continually think outside our doors. All of our panellists here today have helped contribute to businesses or developed events and attractions thinking outside their own doors. And how they achieve this will be a major theme of today's discussion. First up, we have Tim Buckton, Manager of Fremantle Business Award 2021 winner of the Fremantle Ports Business of the Year, the Waters Hotel and Emily Taylor. Tim Buckton is currently one of the owners and partners of the business and the general manager of the Waters Hotel, which houses Emily Taylor and a variety of spaces and bars within the complex. The business can cater for up to 800 diners a day and also accommodates guests across two properties at the Hugamont Hotel and the Waters Hotel. Tim returned to Fremantle in 2013 to work alongside Patrick Prendeville with the development of both the Hugamont Hotel in 2013 to 2017 and the Waters Hotel from concept to execution. As an active believer in community and contributor to Fremantle, Tim's vast experience in the hospitality sector includes overseeing various hotels across very many, many different markets. Tim, you've worked alongside the team from concept to execution, as I mentioned, of two of really landmark projects within Fremantle. You obviously chose Fremantle as location. You've built a vision and it's really different spaces that eclectically, I guess, reflect so much of Fremantle's past and history. Can you talk us through how the vision was formed that transforms a forgotten space like it was within Waters to a thriving multi-venue establishment? Yes, yeah, so we... Um Thank you for having me today. You're it's welcome. exciting to be here. It's quite exciting actually. <laughs> so, yeah, we we actually it took us six years from from point of, I guess, the first discussion when we looked at the space to actually opening our doors. So, like a lot it's of properties, and yeah, it definitely is. And the there's a, like a lot of properties in this area, you, you're fighting against a lot of um, heritage laws. So, making sure you know there's a lot of um, stakeholders here in terms of local government, uh, heri national heritage, as we're under the prison precinct, which which means we're, we're dealing with Canberra to get approval for what we want to do, um, not not even with the state here. So that, that adds another, I guess, another layer. So, um, so, yeah, dealing with all that sort of stuff just really did take a long time <laughs> to get everything going. But um, And then I guess it, for us it was about coming out of a, 
a concept that's celebrating Fremantle or paying respect to the history. We I believe people come to Fremantle um, ahead of places like Mandurah or Hillary's or other other sort of local destinations on the basis that we have so much more interesting background and history. And with that in mind, I think that's what we wanted to sort of tap into and, and tell a story with what we do with Emily Taylor, which is a ship that used to bring spices into Fremantle and then obviously the Warden's um, Cottages, which um, which is where the in the 1800s, built by convicts um, and and the and where the warders used to live. So you know, I think that's a really important aspect of what we're doing. So we, we create an experience that is a little bit different to what you can get elsewhere. And then alongside that is coming up with ideas like, um, you know, how do we how, how can we um, provide a product that that is quick and efficient and but also tasty that people love. So we've come up with something that there's we found a hole in the market and something that there's not a lot of this sort of style of dining and, and um, similar with the accommodation. There's not in terms of what we're offering, it's quite it's unique to mm. to uh, in comparison to a lot of other products um, in Fremantle and also, you know, uh, we don't actually look at Fremantle, other Fremantle hotels or restaurants as our competition. You know, we look at all of us as partnership and, uh, and if everyone's doing well in Fremantle, um, the, the destination does well. Our competition is Mount Lawley or, as mm -hmm. I said, Mandra or other regions where people might go. In the day, if we're busy, then all of our businesses will be busy. Um, yeah, so that we learned that's, a, I guess, and a key. And I think you told that Fremantle story so articulately from the, the artwork to the, the way the architecture has come together right through, as you said, to that food offering that enables yeah. you to, to feed 800 people a day, which is yeah. quite extraordinary. And, and as you said, requires a really unique product to be able to deliver to the size and the scale um, and yet create such intimate spaces as you have within the venue. Yeah. It's an amazing story and I'd love to come back to, you know, some of the thinking behind how that brand vision gets articulated into the tangible, the things you can touch and feel, but also the experience. Yeah. Next on our list panel is actually, well, third down, Jennifer. <laughs> I've got to talk to you next. Um, Jennifer, founder and director of Paperbird Children's Books and Art and winner of Best Retail and Overall People's Choice winner at the Fremantle Business Awards this year. Having worked in London, Perth and Melbourne in child mental health services and an avid visitor and supporter of children's literature and art centres across the world, Jennifer has collected her ideas, vision and enthusiasm to create a storage house for children in Fremantle where there is a wealth of local children's writers, illustrators and storytellers. As founding director also of Woylee Project, Jennifer has facilitated the development of Australia's first dedicated Aboriginal story festival for kids, focusing on Noongar stories amongst a diverse range of Aboriginal stories across Australia and in collaboration with the Magala Books. Jennifer, Business News in their recent article quoted your winning contribution as a holistic creative approach to children's literature, bringing educational experiences to retail and doubling as an art area, writing, illustration, workshop space and support for also mental health appointments for young people that literally flock through your doors. Can you talk us through your journey as to how you brought all of those different amazing components together under one roof and why you chose Fremantle? Well, thanks again for for having me here um yeah it's it's uh it's different for me to be on a kind of business panel rather than a mental health panel or a um, literature panel or and thanks for letting me bring my talk in. <laughs> Who I hangs think that's out? the first for us as well <laughs> I think a definition of success is we've now actually ticked that off the box as well 
So, um, so I've brought Bonnie the bookshop dog in who is also um, hangs out in the therapy space and, and is quite a calming um, presence for kids and adults alike. And, um, and so she's come along today. But uh, the journey that I've had back to Fremantle um, is, um, is really mainly because um, of my own, having my own kids and coming back to... Um, be with extended family and and enjoy raising kids in this amazing uh, space. So I guess when I moved back uh, to Fremantle with two of my kids, um, we felt that uh, we could contribute something to the place that um, we'd enjoyed in other cities and um, that was to have um, dedicated spaces for kids um, art spaces and I have a background in mental health and I use uh, literature a lot in my practice in child psychotherapy and <clears throat> my mum was a children's librarian so I, I grew up around books and appreciating stories and the importance of stories. Um, my grandfather was Irish and um, he was a big storyteller uh, which is how we got um, we named Paper Bird because his surname was Bird and um, so we, yeah, we kind of just tried to um, immerse um, ourselves in stories and wanted to share that with um, Fremantle. And Fremantle being um, such a village and I couldn't think of anywhere else really to live in, um, in WA and, um, and wanted to really base it in a city rather than on the outskirts of of the village so that kids could be and families could be drawn into the into the middle of the city and feel like there's a safe space for them um, and a place to be creative and um, to explore and have direct contact with artists and authors. Um, so we try and make it as dynamic as possible and um, give kids the opportunity to yeah, meet the creators, work with the creators and be inspired to uh, write their own stories and, and become their own illustrators. And, yeah, and, and, and the Wiley Project being part of that um, was basically the essential part. Um, the storytellers, the first storytellers here carrying on the first stories that have continued through the generations and really wanting um, kids now to hear those stories directly from the storytellers but also to assist those storytellers in writing the stories down for the first time and, um, yeah, so that we've got Noongar books on our shelves and in our classrooms and in our homes and having, um, having the stories in um, both... Noongar language and English so that kids can see the beauty of the language. It's amazing and that the idea of story as you were talking it reminded me a little my mother ex-mother-in-law I should say um, in Belgium ran a children's bookstore called Le Raconteur which was like the rat but also this lovely play on words about storytelling and I think you know even in Tim's description of the waters it's amazing how the idea of story flows through to brand and mm -hmm. 
building on what you know and where you're from and that sense of place in business. Mm -hmm. Again, that quote about looking outside your doors is what is around you and how do you build on what you know within your own family mm -hmm. background, but also the stories that you share across the board. And I think there's no better tangible example than what you've created, Jennifer. It's truly amazing. Next to introduce on our panel is Mary Ann's from the um, Republic of Fremantle, Head of Marketing and Sales. Republic of Fremantle was winner of our Best Local Product uh, in the 2021 Fremantle Business Awards. Marianne brings 15 years of experience working across the alcohol and entertainment industries. Her career started on the other side of the world, organising events at Guinness Brewery in Dublin. And again, what an amazing part of each one of you, how you've taken stories from what you've learned and experienced overseas and, and bringing them back home. On return to Western Australia, you joined the marketing team at Plantagenet Wines, another great company started, I think, by one of the founders of our chamber even, which is amazing, that long history uh, through Fremantle in the great southern wine area, um, where among other skills, you developed a palate for premium wine. After a five-year sabbatical from the world of beverages and um, you managed to indulge your passion for the arts as sales and marketing manager for the Perth International Arts Festival, which gave you such valuable insight into curating excellent customer experiences and leveraging CRM to grow audiences. In search of a new adventure and challenge, um, you moved to Sydney, where you then worked for Lion in various brand shopper marketing roles over the world of beer, looking after brands such as uh, Forex, Han, Tui's and the Byron Bay Brewery Company. Being born in Fremantle though, returned to your roots and became a true citizen of our Republic or the Republic of Fremantle and joined uh, the Fr Republic of Fremantle Gin Distillery, which is a true homecoming. But in all of that story, some amazing experiences of brand and storytelling and gathering people together over, I guess, entertainment and great food and wine and beverages. Marianne, you're currently leading an industry that's quite saturated in many ways at the moment, an industry where I often hear my partner describing it as ethanol with a few herbs thrown in. <laughs> How do you differentiate yourself in this market and what is so special about the Republic of Fremantle? Yes, well, again, thanks for having me and I'm so enjoying hearing all the stories from the co-panellists today. So thanks, thanks everyone for sharing. It's great to be here. Um, so the Republic of Fremantle, I mean, it says it in the name, Fremantle is, is the true essence of the culture of, of who we are and what we want to be. And our founders um, are all sort of been living in, born and bred in Fremantle, living in Fremantle uh, their whole life. And they really wanted to celebrate that culture of Fremantle and develop, um, I guess, an experience and also a product that they could... Uh, share with the rest of Australia, hopefully with the rest of the world someday. Um, and they've had experience in distilleries previously, they've had experience in hospitality previously. And one of our founders is a self-professed gin head, as he would say. Um, so they got together and decided to um, really build a, an innovative hospitality venue that had uh, a gin distillery as part of it. Um, so they too went on a very long journey, four years, I think, to develop uh, the business before we opened our and doors. And what felt like three years to get the bottles as well, yes, but I'm sure it wasn't quite that Absolutely, yes. I'm sure we'll chat about COVID <laughs> at some stage, but yes. Um, uh, so they went on a journey to really, I guess, do some research around the industry first, as, as everyone does, and really understand the industry and then really carve out a role uh, for them for their product in that industry. So 
being from Th- Fremantle and based in that Fremantle culture and you're hearing a lot of themes of this across us mm. today as well, um, uniqueness and integrity and creativity was really important to them in, in developing a product. Um, so along their research, they really discovered that potentially um, a lot of what people were drinking was m- maybe ethanol with a few herbs <laughs> mixed in. Um, so, uh, and, you know, that is, they are great products and there's mm. a lot of really talented distillers out there making excellent gin and vodkas. Um, but what we discovered in that journey was that uh, that real skill of distilling, which is actually making of the base alcohol, mm. um, that wasn't really happening a lot in Australia in vodka or in gin. In in fact, it's not really happening throughout the world. Um, So that's something that they found really exciting and felt that they could really add some value to the industry by delivering a product where people actually, where we actually make our own base spirit and we make it from a local product, which is wine from the Swan Swan Valley. Um, And they really wanted to celebrate that art and that skill of uh, distilling from scratch. Um, So that was, I guess, an easy decision for them to make. And then it took four years (laughs) to actually make it happen and we sort of quickly found out why not many people, not many other people do it. Mm. Um, But we really, uh, we truly believe it's worth it. We believe we have uh, a really special story to tell about Fremantle and this, um, the way we make our products and honouring that skill of uh, distilling really helps us do that in a unique way. Absolutely. And right down to the sense of space and place that you've created with that incredible infrastructure and beauty of even the process, which is amazing to see that celebrated. Yeah, that was really important to us that um, the process from start to finish of how we make our product, and I I believe consumers really care a lot more these days about how products are made, Um, it was really important that that process was really visible and really tactile and you feel that experience when you're in the distillery. So um, I think that's what makes it a really quite unique space to be in as well. Mm, Absolutely. And last but not least, who I call one of the most wonderful parts of Fremantle, uh, Jill Harrison, Site Manager of Fremantle's Museums, WA Maritime Museum and Shipmates Museum, winner of Fremantle Business Awards, Best Attraction Including Events for the Incredible Vikings of the North Exhibition and 2009 winner of Business of the Year for an amazing year that you had at the museum um, just before the world changed really, Jill, wasn't it? Um, By way of background, you grew up in Scotland, which we can hear from your amazing accent shortly, um, studied arts at the University of Edinburgh. You then completed a postgrad in secondary education and taught humanities and social sciences at secondary level in Edinburgh. And then in a twist of fate, you moved to WA in 1998 and landed at the WA Museum in 2001 as a visitor services officer. You moved through various roles at the museum until you were appointed uh, site manager for Fremantle Museums five years ago. Here, you're responsible for the delivery of services and programs across both sites and responsible for meeting the visitation targets to the museum. You're an active believer in community, you sit on our Chamber Tourism Committee and you work so hard to ensure that both your museums reflect truly are and truly are the heart of this community in many ways. And also like Jennifer, brings so many young people uh, into the region to experience Fremantle. Jill, how do you derive a successful exhibition like Vikings from concept to execution and reach the visitation targets that you continue to deliver um, into Fremantle and to the museums? 
Tanisha. <laughs> and thanks for having me this morning. Um, well, the Vikings exhibition, to bring it together, takes a lot of people. You know, the Maritime Museum is part of WA Museum, so we have um, a few sites across the state. And um, we generally plan our exhibition schedule about five years in advance, so we start talking to people about what exhibitions are out there, um, you know, five years ago <laughs> oh, wow. in order to get them to Fremantle. Um, with this exhibition, it came from the National Museum in Denmark and we worked with a partner called Museums Partner um, to bring it to Fremantle. Um, also about five years ago when I... Um, began in this role as site manager, um, we made a decision as a management team that we were really going to focus on bringing high quality world-class exhibitions to Fremantle. And so over the last five years, um, we've um, had a range of exhibitions and um, we really wanted to make sure that we're getting the right the right diversity of exhibitions in Fremantle that are going to appeal to different people in our community. Um, and we do a lot of formative research before we commit to an exhibition. Um, and with the Vikings exhibition, the feedback was really great that it was going to appeal to wide audiences. People were really interested in knowing about their heritage. Um, um, the, there's a Vikings TV series and people were really into that and I'm really interested um, in um, looking at the real thing, you know, the artefacts. So um, this, the Vikings exhibition was, um, it came from the National Museum of Denmark. It was the first time that I'd been to Australia. Um, we're quite lucky in Western Australia because... Um, we can partner with other museums around Australia to bring exhibitions here. Um, because we don't have, because we're isolated in, in the West, there's much more opportunity for us to do that than if we were, you know, over East. Mm. Um, but this exhibition was a little bit different because we, um, we didn't partner with another museum to bring it here. We, we brought it here um, um, just to come to the Maritime Museum. And we worked with the with museum partners and the National Museum of Denmark to um, to build an exhibition that was going to fit our space, and um, and we liked it because as well as telling maritime history, it um, told a lot of social history elements as well. Um, our our formative research um, also helps us um, build a marketing plan, make sure that. Um, the exhibition's going to be value for money for people because it's a paying exhibition. Um, and we also um, use our research as well to build um, quite a detailed programme of public events and activities and education programmes and so on. And um, that's um, really important to us because every exhibition will appeal to the exhibition itself will appeal to a certain section in our community. So with Vikings, um, it was more focused on adults. 
Um, we've had exhibitions in the past that have been really sort of children and family focused, like um, Horrible Histories. Um, um, so the public programming side of it, we, it's um, just adding all these layers so that we are um, still connecting with um, one with Vikings, with our family audiences and with children. And we but also creating that different target, which is so interesting because yeah. even now, as you said, when you go through the exhibition, there was so much about the social interaction and the the uh, I guess the archaeological components of how they take fabric to create links to um, society and telling that story. And yeah. I had never really thought until you mentioned it then just how much thought and research goes into. The, the way you tell a story of an exhibition and who you're actually targeting, right through to creating those amazing dinners and, and having the museum alive through all of those different experiences, Jill. Yeah, so it's, um, yeah, and every 12 months I will develop an operational plan for the site. And, um, and I think that's really important as far as the exhibition delivery goes, you know, is having that plan and knowing where you're going and bringing the team with you and, mm. yeah. Absolutely, and the logistics involved, I imagine, in bringing an exhibition of that size <laughs> to WA, especially during COVID, must have been extraordinary. Um, yeah, it was for the team. It was, um, you know, there was quite a few challenges. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we've all started using recently is, um, you know, Skype and Teams and, you know, video calls and all that sort of thing. And... Um, and that allows you to build trust with partners that are on the other side of the world. And yeah, so. <laughs> Each one of your own stories, just the little glimmers we've had, I think I get a sense that there's always this amazing vision of what you want to achieve behind it. And you all know where you're going, but the roadblocks do come. And I don't think any of us <laughs> get through without those roadblocks. I mean, you talked about approvals, Tim, as being, you know, one of those roadblocks. I think, you know, from the getting the, the um, distillery together and those beautiful bottles and the, the time that that took and I, I know in your stories there's a lot of that. How do you keep focused on that vision when those roadblocks hit? Yeah, I'll jump in I guess. Yeah, um, yeah listen, obviously the roadblocks right now are significant, mm -hmm. like unprecedented you'd probably call them. Um, so obviously the obvious one's COVID, mm -hmm. you know, that, and that, that's obviously affected for us, um, you know, it affects everything really mm. because we're we're we have a, we need a hundred and twenty odd staff to operate, which we have, but the the turnover can be significant because I guess there's a, there's a gap in skills. Well, competing for the same right now. Oh, there's yeah. there's there's a huge gap in skills, um, especially in kitchens and experienced people in whether it's in housekeeping or. Um, with the biggest significant shortage is really in, um, I guess, there's less backpackers in, in, um, in Australia in industry, for the obvious reasons. Yeah. So they would normally fill the hole. So that's keeping uh, the entire industry um, it's short. helping me and my car park team because yeah. I'm no longer fighting with them <laughs> every day. Winning, but yes, yeah. for you guys, I think it does detract from so, your So, yeah, that, that's a huge <laughs> problem for us. Um, and then the obvious one as a tourism destination, Fremantle, one, I think everyone would some impact here would be, especially in our accommodation, with the Hoogawant Bannister 22, which is a new business we've um, taken over. And um, obviously the Warders Hotel, we rely on... Um, People. On um, uh, interstate mm. travel, corporate business and international business, and that's all gone. So the only way we've been able to um, keep those accommodation 
business is going at all is really trying to get creative and make packages and stuff like that by partnering with local businesses. Like mm. we're using the Fremantle Prison. We've been utilising, um, uh, you know, trips over to Rottnest and packaging things up. So that's sort of how we've sort of fought through some of the challenges. But the reality is we're, we're also confident in our product. So, um, you know, even locals, there is a market there. There's Perth, Perth people on the flip side aren't able to go and experience things elsewhere. So they are really looking locally on what they can do. And, and if you've got a good product, whether it's um, with, a, with, a hist- with a bit of history, as I said, going back to why uh, I think Fremantle as a town might be travelling a lot better than other parts of, of um, other parts of major cities at least. Um, the, yeah, the... We, we are, we've got a unique experience here, all of us, and, and many other businesses in town that are that will mean local people, mm. as in people from the hills or people from north of Perth or even down south, will still come to Fremantle and then that's the market we need to target and Absolutely. make it our focus. Um, and a lovely thing then again also about looking outside your door for different partnerships, for different opportunities. You know, Jill mentioned that the... The, the necessity to create partnerships with our delivery partners sort of internationally. But I guess in all of your businesses, right down to Jennifer, yours in creating partnerships with the authors that you create. We can't develop businesses without a strong product, but we also can't deliver them without in isolation without those sorts of partnerships and strengths. Did anyone else on the panel want to just talk about roadblocks and how you kind of have managed to navigate your way through sure. them? Um, Yes, so obviously trying to launch a new venue or business product in COVID definitely presented significant challenges. Um, But uh, your question around how you overcome them and I think having that strength of vision about what you want to achieve and I guess using that as your North Star, having a really, I guess, clear roadmap of how you're going to achieve that vision really helps. And then when those roadblocks come up, um, having a growth mindset to recognise the roadblock and then using uh, your partners and your teams and your people around you to to plan around how you're going to get through those roadblocks and, and be agile enough in your thinking, I guess, to, to change that pathway that you'd laid out and, and build a new one or, you know, maybe a bridge or something like that. Um, yeah, so one that you mentioned, alluding to earlier, was obviously uh, we had a lot of trouble getting glass bottles out, out one made overseas and then shipped in. It's, and shipping continues to be a big problem for us and a lot of businesses um, in Fremantle, obviously being a port city, it's very top of mind mm. for everyone. Um, so we, in that, in that minute, you know, we... Um, really decided about what was really important to us and to launch uh, a new product without your key brand asset, your primary bottle, was not acceptable to us. Mm. So um, we made a really tough decision to postpone that opening and push it back. Um, There's always a silver lining in that though. It meant we got to spend a lot more time thinking and planning planning strategy. we got 
you know, a lot more people still trialling the product on Friday nights uh, at the venue while it was before it was mm. open, things like that. Um, so there was a lot of work that was able to continue that helped set us up for success when we actually did open. And built that anticipation. I think, you know, the guerrilla marketing campaign. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the citizen campaign, campaign. All yeah, of those absolutely. things were actually able to gain momentum and I guess that's one exactly. of the, the lights and in that roadblock. The, yeah, Absolutely. And if we'd had the bottles on time, we potentially never would have done the citizens campaign and that mm. would have been a real shame not mm. to have done that. And so, built that brand loyalty yeah, through that. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. So, um, where there's roadblocks, there's always opportunities as mm. well, I guess. You've yeah. just got to keep your eyes open to yeah. see them, I guess. Yeah. Jennifer, how about for you? Well, we were quite um, dependent, I guess, on having lots of events. Mm. And um, so for us, keeping up the connection with our community was kind of the essential thing on our minds. And um, so we threw ourselves into a lot of filming um, through basically getting authors to film themselves in their studios, at their home studios. And that was great. So we, we set up a YouTube channel and um, we had so many different authors, including interstate authors like Alison Lester, um, offer their time to film themselves in their studios, talk about what they're working on show the, you know, the amazing um, backdrops to their work and their inspiration. Like Alison, you know, showed us around her farm and the animals that she was drawing and it was just extraordinary. So that in itself pre created an opportunity for, for us to, um, yeah, to have that material to then hold on to as well as share in immediately mm -hmm. with kids um, and get kids to engage um, through <laughs> virtual book clubs and... Um, you know, we had to stop doing the um, Whaley festivals um, and we haven't restarted them yet just because we are protecting the original community from doing any public events mm -hmm. still. And um, But we've kind of pivoted, as they say, into um, publishing the books and focusing on publishing the books rather than doing the events at this point. So, yeah, it creates other opportunities. Mm -hmm. It's just about being versatile and... And looking for the looking for the options. And what about developing, I guess, the business itself? All of those different components. Did they come incrementally, or did you find that you sort of pulled it all together all at once? No, definitely came incrementally, and um, it it's all about you know being open to everyone's ideas. So mm. when I started the bookshop nearly six years ago, it was just me, and um, being open seven days a week. Um, was just unsustainable <laughs> I think is the word <laughs> having a child in kindergarten and um you know I really um lent heavily on um my family and friends and um and now we have quite a big team and it's just um I'm a bit of a yes person so you know anyone that came in the door with an idea of how they wanted to use the space we've had lots of different uses of the space going on and now we're at a point where um, I've been able to kind of step back from the bookshop um, management side of things um, to do back into my clinical practice part-time, which is really fantastic for me and um, and be able to hand on some of the responsibilities but still, you know, really be involved and have everyone everything under the same roof. And so we have, you know, illustrators and authors out the back in studios and we have 
clinicians upstairs and we have um, lots of different things going on in the bookshop all the time. So it's a real kind of beehive of activity all the time. But that kind of all feeds into... Um, yeah, it's movement and atmosphere. It feeds into it? the business yeah. and the more stuff that's going on, the better. Yeah. Absolutely, because I think, you know, especially in a children's bookstore, you want a very different experience from that almost very quiet, yeah. <laughs> peaceful place. You yeah. want that activity and that vibrancy, which you've amazingly mm. created by linking all of those things mm. together. Um, Jill, it's interesting as Tim was talking about, I guess, um, you know, the difficulty in the hospitality sector at the moment in terms of retaining and building a team and keeping that consistency of team. And I know it's just an ongoing problem at the moment. Within your team, you strike me from the outside as having built a team and kept it together for a really long time. You know, they're familiar faces in all of the exhibitions. How have you managed to do that? How do you cement the team and keep them focused, as particularly when you're delivering such a complex operational plan on a regular basis? Um, we, I guess, one of the biggest things for us would be um, providing information to staff about what's coming up um, and, um, and training. Um, so about... I mean, our front of house staff um, are, you know, sort of more of the customer service, um, tour guiding, um, hospitality sort of side of things. Um, um, the, there are other staff who work in the museum, the curatorial staff and the conservators and so on. And, um, and they, like myself, most of them have been at the museum for years and years. <laughs> um, um, but with um, our front of house team, um, we we try to have a couple of days every year where we um, where we have a big staff workshop and we talk about what's happened over the last year, what we're doing now, what's coming up, um, the sort of you know have an open conversation about any issues, the the the, the big things that are. Um, maybe um, causing problems or stresses for people. Um, and yeah, I think um, that's, you know, it's quite hard to organize getting everybody together twice a year um, to do a workshop like that. But I think that's really um, helpful. And there's always a bit of fun to the workshop as well. Um, our last workshop, which was just a few weeks ago, we asked Michael Deller to do a tour around Fremantle with um, all of our staff just to connect them with what's actually, because we all work in Fremantle, but we don't always get out into Fremantle to find out what's going on and all the new developments and um, to sort of um, understand that everybody in Fremantle's, you know, changing and having to be very innovative and, um, and offer new experiences, especially, you know, with COVID and so on. And again, helping look outside the doors, which is another really big theme. I think, you know, all yeah. of our businesses rely on that creation of a destination and we all need people, you know, coming in through the... And when the museum's doing well, the bookstore's doing well yeah. and, you know, when your venue's doing well, then the Republic's doing well. You know, it's, it's quite an interdependent, I think, community really that differs a lot from other areas. Yeah, yeah and I'd say, you know, we try to build a really close relationship with our staff. Mm. So every morning we have team meetings and, um, you know, um, just recognising when things are busy or stressful or we're implementing new systems and 
you know, working with people to bring everybody mm. along with us. And continue to do so in that established yeah. team. And I guess yeah. all of you, the rest of you have really built new teams. How do you um, infuse that culture and that, um, I guess, vision that you talked about, that roadmap? Maybe, Marianne, if you wanted to start, because you were talking a little bit about that you guys have stayed really focused in terms of the leaders of the business of where you want to go. How do you bring others along with you on that journey? It's something, I guess... Um it's a little bit that you have to be quite deliberate, deliberate about how you're how you're doing that. Um, so there's a lot of, I guess, intangible things. Um, the the space, the fact that everyone works at the distillery, um, we do. You know, there's those intangible everyday water cooler conversations. But I guess the um, very deliberate things that we do um, is starts from recruitment mm. you know how, how you recruit people the type of people you recruit um making sure that you're you're getting people who share your values and your ethos um in their personal lives as well um and they see something uh, beneficial for themselves in, in helping you achieve your vision as well so i think um from recruitment from the outset it's really mm. important then how you welcome someone to the business and to the to the team is really important as well so really setting them up for success with really strong induction plans and making sure that they um know the the vision and the plan from the outset and they have a very clear um clear view of how they contribute and to, that they vision. to that yeah. vision yeah and what part they play that's right mm. and then obviously checking in on that with them uh, on regular basis, depending on their role and what they do, just making sure that vision is kept alive and checked in on mm. and, and we sort of talk about how we're going and delivering our goals and things like that. So I think, um, you know, being being really clear about how everyone contributes to that vision is really important. Um, keeping it fun as mm. well, you know, we obviously, uh, people are attracted to uh, a distillery because it's fun, you know, it's um, it's really creative. And in actual fact, that's a really key theme through mm. all of your stories is that you've created businesses that have a natural appeal, not only for your yeah. customers, but an attraction for people who want to be part of your story as well. That's right. Mm. So we make sure that there's a lot of capability builds as mm. well. So we make sure the start, we have um, regular monthly training sessions for our staff, really engaging sessions from... Um, trying a whole range of vodkas that are made from different base ingredients, different raw ingredients, to um, trying new wines, mm. to trying new food dishes, to going out and seeing what other people are doing as a team. Um, so, and, and we're at a very exciting stage in our business. You know, there's a lot of um, really exciting things happening for the first time. There's just a real energy and momentum in the business that's infectious as yes. well and it's fun. So that's a really big part of it too. And I guess for Tim, for you being a new business and, and now quite an award-winning business, does that help retain and attract staff? Yeah, it does. It's um, uh, definitely now I'm finding it easier to recruit than it was when we first started when actually no one knew anything about us. Mm. So like come work in our bar and our restaurant, you know, we're... It's got a really nice painting. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, I've never even heard of you guys. So yeah. that and – and I think, to be honest, I'd probably mirror a lot of mm. the answers um, because recruitment, I guess, comes down to really strong induction. So before they've even started, they understand our brand, they understand our vision. You spend, We spend – I personally spend half a day with the staff before they even 
clear a table, um, telling them all about Emily Taylor, the story behind Emily Taylor, the story behind the Waters Hotel, the the historical the story, our mm. story and our vision and um, our service sequence of service expectations and and um, they taste our food and all that sort of stuff. But that's the first thing that we all sort of do um, before they, you know, are put out front. Mm. I think hospitality businesses, and this is something I've probably learned over the last 12 months, hospitality business is very easy just to chuck people in the mm. deep end. And that's, you know, first week, if I'm being honest, we probably did a bit of that. Yeah, absolutely. And people didn't stick around and um, so we've got to look at ourselves over the last 12 months so, well what do we and need to do to improve the customer experience yeah, isn't well, it? yeah exactly yeah. what do we need to improve and now we're seeing dramatic improvements in that sense but um and then the other thing i think for retaining staff you know it, it is going to be a challenge it's going to be natural turnover um how um because people are getting headhunted you got mm. you got other operators coming in and just grabbing people which is um it's a bit brutal out there in that sense but the other thing I think is um, communication. They, they need to know if something's changed. Um, so trying to, we've got the um, like a online communication board where everything goes up. Everyone need, knows and that needs to be updated pretty much every day if something that's happened or a new product's out or whatever's happening. And then, um, yeah, training I think is the other one. Mm. So exactly the same thing, bringing people in. Uh, we Because we've got such a variety of roles to do, I've found a lot of success in bringing staff in Let's say they really want to be learn how to do the cocktails. Let's well, let's get you going on this section. Then we'll put you in there. Then we'll get you trained on the barista machine. And you want to do some hotel um, reservations? Yep, cool. I'm looking for people in there. So uh, that way you're creating a role that's not the same for them every day, and it creates interest. And I'm finding that's also helping a lot. Again, this is all sort of because you can offer that diversity yeah, of experience. Yeah, we need, we need receptionists. Yeah. We need housekeeping. Yeah. We need people in the kitchen. We need people on the floor. We need people in the bar. We need baristas. Pretty much from seven in the morning to My one, mind one is just a.m. Blowing the, next the day. idea of rostering all the Yeah, so as I said, we've got 118 <laughs> staff, and it, it keeps me busy. The rostering, it's like two days. I have enough trouble with my five at yeah. times, knowing where so, everyone yeah. is and what they're doing. <laughs> so the so that's it. They're the things you can do um, yeah, to create an um, interesting work environment for them. Um, and yeah, then you just if you treat people right, pay them well, we'll look after them, mm. make sure you know the hospitality does have. Not saying any businesses that I don't know of, but I know it's got the reputation of people underpaying things like that. No, that's not that's not us. We well, pay. you can't afford to do it in this market, yeah. can you? People do those things, and unfortunately, that's given the reputation as a whole mm. in that industry as a negative. Mm. But just knowing that everyone's been looked after, I think helps. Yeah, Jennifer, I'm intrigued working in a business where I imagine a lot of people come to you with a, just such an overwhelming passion for what you do. How, that's both a strength and a weakness, I think, in many ways. And you mentioned that you love hearing the ideas and taking them on board. How do you balance all of that passion and energy with, and the, I guess the hive of activity you've talked about, and still keep that overall vision of where you want the business to go? Well, I've learned basically <laughs> on the job <laughs> of what works and what doesn't work and, and how to better curate those um, experiences and and you know um and how to balance you know having control of the vision and the and the pathway and letting other people try out new things i mean i guess for my staff um it's like um, what tim was saying it's really important to invest in um individuals career pathways mm. and to um, keep their jobs interesting and so for instance um, one of our youngest team members 
started off, you know, always, you know, I need people who are passionate readers, number one, you know, and love literature. That's absolutely critical. Um, but, you know, her, her vision entering university was to be a vet. And now her vision <laughs> is to be um, a publisher. You know, it's, she has, she's tried out, you know, veterinary. She's come back to now studying English literature at um, UWA and she's in charge of um, working on a new concept of, a, of an illustrator magazine and doing editing of that. And so just continually upskilling and creating career pathways, opportunities that people don't even have in their mind initially but you know when you can see the talent in people and you can show them that there are job opportunities there um, and support them then um, you're yeah, much more likely to retain those staff and for them to really invest in the business in terms of their creative abilities and yeah. It's amazing and so we're looking at both internally within our own doors creating that attachment to that vision, keeping that talent, keeping the, the life and the blood of the organisation interested and engaged. And I guess that then helps translate externally into the, the marketing and the way that you do that. And just then transitioning to the marketing. Jill, I guess an exhibition like Vikings in many ways sells itself because there's such an incredible attraction. But you still have to get that message out to so many different people and, and as you said, create all of those different experiences and let people know about them in order to come. How do you go about it? And I know you have a, a bigger team within the museum that's responsible for all of that marketing, but you do a lot on a local level too to really make sure that people keep coming through the door. How do you achieve that? Um, well, we do have a marketing team with W Museum. So for a major exhibition like Vikings, they will come up with a marketing plan. Um, but on a site level, it's um, about making sure that we, you know, that the the um, branding on site is um, hitting the mark, that um, the images that we're putting out there and um, the, the, you know, description of the exhibition is going to meet people's expectations when they come to the museum um, and um, locally, you know, um, using our Facebook page to tell people about the exhibition and the events and the programs that are ha happening and looking for opportunities to work with people locally. So with every exhibition, one of the first things we do is um, we have a family and friends preview. So that's for our um, staff their family, our volunteers, um, local stakeholders and any sponsors. So um, so we really find that these nights are successful in getting um, people in the community to come down to the and museum, the yeah. go through the exhibition and all we really ask them to do is if they've enjoyed it is to tell their family and their friends and their customers and to share you know, to share by word of mouth. Yeah. Um, and um, and then looking for other opportunities throughout the period of the exhibition to, to work with other businesses. So it might be through partnerships with the City of Fremantle or through um, businesses through the Chamber of Commerce. Um, so with Vikings, for example, um, we worked with quite a few of the hotels in Fremantle. Um, to put Viking table toppers um, in each of the rooms and um, 
and gave the hotels in exchange um, free tickets to the exhibition. So um, things like that are really, um, yeah, really great and help they're us get the word out but there. They're so creative in thinking through those partnerships. And in fact, mm. our next podcast, we're actually just going to talk about how you form and creatively think about relationships to build your own businesses. Because I think it is such an untold component of the six really successful businesses like your own and not just based on your own business, but on the partnerships that you have with whether it's your publishers or the hotels and really creatively thinking about that range of stakeholders. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation next month. I'll just briefly jump to our audience and online. Any queries online at the moment, Cal? Miles, did you have any questions? Maybe to Tim. A eh? first, firstly, um, I was one of the guinea pigs for your staycation packages, which I really enjoyed. Thank you. Uh, captivated by the um, development, lovely development, and great experience. Uh, but I guess picking up on the uh, theme of the culture of Fremantle, and we've heard about blockages. I'm wondering what sustainability meant to the development of. Waters and Emily Taylors and the ongoing operation. And I guess the same question could go to other members of the panel, but I suspect it's more pertinent to Tim's. Well. So sustainability talking in terms of um, sustainable business long term or environmental? Both, but both, both but yeah. mainly from an environmental point of view. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So from our point of view, from an environmental point of view, I think most hospitality businesses these days are looking how they what, what they purchase. Um, where the product comes from, uh, things like waste and making sure that they do it. There's almost an expectation that that's, they're the minimum. You've got to do those things these days. Um, I think Fremantle was quite a green town. Um, has a, 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 Our consumers expect that from us. So little things we do, it takes time, but we believe in, 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 in it is things like waste bottles, for example. We crush down every single bottle into a fine sort of um, little bits of tiny glass that, that are then able to be 100% um, recycled. Do you know what I mean? So not 100% of recycling is actually recycled. Um, I think only a percentage of it is. So things like that, we've invested in the equipment to, you know, go down that path. But then also what we what we purchase. So purchasing is a big thing for us. Um, you know, any week we spend up to $80,000 on purchasing, purchasing food, beverage, all that sort of stuff. And where you're buying and, you know, look, look uh, in terms of product, so your seafoods, for example, is a sustainable seafood, is the um, sustainable farming practices, all those sort of things. It's a lot cheaper not to buy sustainable, which is a shame, but that, that is the way it is. And, um, you know, so things like that, we're making sure that we support businesses that are supporting the greater good of, of it for the environment. In terms of long-term um, being sustainable as a business, putting all those sort of things in place, um, consistency and service, and product is what's going to make us long-term successful. Um, and again, just there's a lot of critics out there, a lot of critics. So um, it comes back to that point about passion, isn't it? Yeah. I started the mayoral debate the other day where I was saying the passion of Fremantle is one of its incredible assets, but it's also our greatest weakness in that it does pull critics out of every oh, corner. There's of the critics world. everywhere, and the media in the first few months, which you know we've had. Listen, we believe that we we serve our community first; it's our number one priority. Um, but, you know, you'll have a, 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 journal, a, a national journalist come in who may not believe the product that we're selling is the best, is, is good. So they'll have their own opinion on that. And that's in, that's in over East newspapers and things like that. And things like that, you, we've got to sort of, you know, you, you, 
look at you, it's actually almost upsetting. You think, well, are we on the right track here? But the reality is when you're getting anywhere between two to 200 to 1,000 people in your door a day and the, the overall, overwhelming response from your actual market, that people coming in and having a good experience, you've got to think, well, that 12 months later, they're still coming in. And they're still thinking about your lobster dumpling, yeah, which exactly. I do quite regularly. So maybe, maybe um, <laughs> you know, maybe don't be too... We, I guess sometimes we try not to be too critical of ourselves as well and just stick with what we're doing because we know what we're doing is popular and, and well-received. And it's interesting that the question, Miles, too, so much of that sustainability relates to almost the back of business that your front customers don't often see, but it goes to the, the values of the organisation and what your teams see, and it does come through in other aspects of your business. Did anyone else want to comment on the sustainability question? Well, uh, to your point, I think sustainability is so important to our consumers, um, both our local community, but also more broadly. Um, so it's kind of, uh, it's an expectation now of how you go about your business um, is to do it in a sustainable fashion. So um, sourcing, you know, the raw produce for our product locally from the Swan Valley is wonderful. It's a wonderful story to tell, but also it's a very sustainable way to to make our products. Um, unfortunately, uh, to be to be gin, you must have juniper in it. And we can't uh, grow juniper in Australia, so gin's going to have a hard time <laughs> saying that we're 100 <laughs> locally local. locally made. But absolutely, we uh, wherever possible, we'd try and source local. Um, ingredients or produce. And I think the definition according to our exporters in terms of Australian and local content is related also to what you do with the original product and how you transform it, but definitely. Yeah. I was just thinking about, you know, the way industries change and the sustainability question. And I guess, Jennifer, one of the, the complex bits about being in literature and being in books um, is thinking through the future. As an avid reader myself, I often sit and I think, so much of it is paper-based and that's so much of what is so enjoyable about the process of literature and I can't imagine a world where I can't pick up a book, a Kindle's never going to do that for me. How do you balance that um, in a market, I guess, that is so sustainably focused? Well, I think that's um, something that we feed back to the publishers because they're the ones that are sourcing the materials mm. to print their books and who they choose to print through and, and those kinds of things. Um, more publishers are printing onshore, obviously, because it's harder now to get the delivery times and things as well um, and and the, the dyes they use and things like that. So, and we, we are constantly feeding back to them about what um, the expectations are of our um, customers mm -hmm. and, um, and kids being... Um, very conscious and, and, you know, feeding um, kids' ideas through literature around sustainability and, and, and there is um, uh, lots of um, prizes and things like even World Wildlife Fund and things do literature prizes for the best novels on sustainability and things like that. So it's a real, like, you know, it's, it's one of those themes through literature now that is, um, is high up on... In, and kids are, you know, really engaged. So that's fantastic. And, um, yeah, it's, it's one of those. And, and, you know, the delivery of books and things has changed as well. So there, there is movement there and there is, there is a recognition of expectations. 
And in this conversation, we're also talking about another key component of successful business, and that is the whole pathway of distribution and product development and how you maintain your eye on the whole of the product process. And again, you know, when we think of hospitality venues or we think of, you know, bookstores, we're always often thinking of the, the outside bit that we can touch and feel. And behind each one of your successful businesses is a whole chain of people and organisations that are involved in getting to that sort of front end, which is a really another whole conversation really in itself. Um, just thinking through the future, and I guess if we were to be sitting here in five years' time, ten years' time, maybe run down the panel and just get an idea of what you'd like to see in your business and where your focus is and what you'd like to be if you were talking about success in your business, where you'd like to be. Um, well, for us, we, I guess it's a little bit out of the Fremantle realm, but we want to create a similar business for us as economies of scale here terms of producing because we make everything ourselves and making the dumplings and all that sort of stuff by hand mm. if you had two venues going through similar volume then the economies of scale in terms of the manpower become more efficient so we're looking it's at be a dumplings machine if that's that it yeah. <laughs> so we'd like to put a another similar product yeah. in and up but it will be obviously we, we've got this market um for that we've got one in this market we want to look at another part of of Perth, so that's our five-year plan. In terms of this particular business, uh, for us, if, if if we're just ticking along like we are now in terms of consistency in the product, consistency in the service, you know, the architectural stuff, which is um, so which is which is probably one of our, you know, a big thing, which is, um, you know, but maintaining that in terms of the quality and the, and, and the building itself. And if we can maintain where we're at now in five years and we, you know, we've started to pass the test of time, like businesses like... Um, Bread in common. Like mm. They've been there. They've, they've been there for a long time now, and they're still always busy. They're consistent in their service. They're consistent in their product. You know what you're going to get when you go to Bread in Common. So that's a, that's a long term successful business, I think. Um, so little creatures, there's many. There's mm. many. Even if you look at Geno's and Benny's and all those businesses in Fremantle that have not, they're not a flash in the pan. They're they're here. And they're not going anywhere. And, in, <laughs> and, and they all reflect a sense of place, yeah. really good design and really good consistency. In consistency, you know what you're going to get. So that, yeah. that's what I'd be extremely happy if in five years we're still at that point. Mm. Um, that's I think that's an amazing thought and particularly in hospitality where we do see so many businesses come in and they're on the money and they're on trend for a moment in time. But it is with that consistency and those really amazing bones of design and vision that have seen many of our local businesses really stand that test of time. Yeah, I think that's great. Marianne, how about you? So Repu where's the Republic, Republic going to be? Of Fremantle. So we absolutely want to share the um, wonderful culture of Fremantle with the rest of Australia, with other cities all through the world, um, through our products that we make at, at, here at the distillery in Fremantle. So I'd love to see um, other venues in other cities, our little Republic of Fremantle embassies popping up all over the world um, and giving, uh, giving We'd that like to see that too in terms yes. of export documents <laughs> yeah. coming through, so let's keep that uh, moving. Yeah, so, so letting, um, giving other people the chance to experience that little slice of Fremantle yeah, potentially absolutely. outside of Fremantle. So yeah, that's what we'd love. So keeping your eyes well and truly and not outside just these community doors but into those global markets yes, and interstate absolutely. markets. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah. Jennifer, how about you? 
I mean, I think like um, Emily Taylor and Republic of Frio, um, Paper Birds Base, in, you know, has really good bones for the building, the heritage of the place, um, people associate it with being a really solid foundation of a business that's here to stay. Yeah. And um, although I don't have visions of lots of paper birds popping up all over the world, um, I do have visions of it being um, continuing to be a one of its kind and that um, people will recognise that all over the world as they are starting to do um, and for us to have products that we can um, send out um, including for instance this um, beautiful illustrator mu uh, magazine and um, and you know our Noongar books and and being able to share the stories from this place um, which are unique stories but to yeah to share the love that way it's wonderful thanks Jennifer Jill, it's been so long. 1998, <laughs> did we say that you've uh, been part of the story at the museum? What stories do you think you're going to bring? What stories are you going to tell over the next few years if we're sitting here in this room again? <laughs> um, well, we're going to continue with our plan to bring really great international exhibitions to, to Fremantle. So I can't actually say what these are, but we do have a plan. <laughs> um, um, we also work with communities as well. We've got a community space within the museum, within both museums, where um, we work with community group groups to co-create exhibitions. So it's really important for us that people use their museum, that they come and participate in the museum and um, are able to contribute to it in some way. So, um, so that's important for us mm. that that continues. Um, and so that's an example of like when you had the amazing boat, hobby boat builders build in the shipwrecks, that kind of style of, is that what you're talking about when you describe yes. that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So at shipwrecks, um, I can't talk about this one. We've got a community exhibition which will open up in December, um, which is being presented by the, um, the Australian Dutch Foundation. And it's about boat building in WA and Fremantle's got, you know, a strong heritage of, yeah. of wooden boat building. And um, so it's working with community groups like that um, to produce something that's, you know, um, that connects to people and community and tells stories. Um, it's obviously ongoing. It's just important to provide people with a great experience when they come to the museum, mm -hmm. get all the basics right. Um, but we've certainly got a dream <laughs> to um, to introduce a lot more marine um, elements to um, the maritime museum, so natural history elements. Um, we've got a few really amazing exhibits like our Mega Mouth Shark, yes. who's really cool. I sent two boys there yesterday. <laughs> I was like, there's a shark in a tank at the museum. Go and see it. And they just sprinted off into the distance. Yeah, so, I um, mean, he's amazing. He's yeah. unique. Yeah. Um, we can tell lots of stories about sustainability and oceans and all that sort of thing through these sort of exhibits. So, um, yeah, so we want to look at that in the future and bring more of that sort of content into the Maritime Museum and build our membership because we just... Um, um, introduced a new membership membership system system um, so um, that's important to us as well. and keep building that community which again yeah. is such a big theme and 
the diversity of your businesses are so extraordinary, yet there's so many consistent themes in today's conversation around obviously all of your minds to constantly working on new ideas and new ways yeah. to implement things yes. and pull that community together. Yes. Um, I like what we were saying earlier, you know, um, if you're working with other people, then you can do a lot more than just working by yourself. And I think that's something that Fremantle as a whole, the business community does really well. We're all open to working with each other and... Um, yeah, it's one of my favourite things about working in Fremantle. So Absolutely, yeah. and that's probably a beautiful, beautiful way to finish, unless we've got any other questions, Cal. Anyone else in the room, at least? Do you want to ask anything? Anyone else? Well, thank you both for being in the room to our gorgeous first-time cameo appearance on a, a podcast and to um, everyone else that's listening um, outside and in the comfort of their homes with hopefully a nice cup of coffee. Um, thank you for tuning in. The podcast also goes live on our podcast station. There's a number of other amazing um, podcasts there from social media to building systems for growth um, to how to budget. Um, so fantastic themes that I think echo so many of what we've heard today. Um, you're amazing local leaders. We were so thrilled this year at the Business Awards to have such incredible diversity of talent. And I think a number of people have also just commented on how fresh and new and interesting and what an amazing group of emerging industries that we're really starting to see, um, both from our traditional hospitality sector, but also from the, our emerging creative industries and right through to technology. And I know within the room, even Miles last year with his um, award for sustainable businesses, you know, I think we have such a strong future here across the board and it's just a really exciting thing to be part of and to hear your stories. So thank you so much to each one of you for giving up your time um, to come and share your stories. I always find it so inspiring, even personally, just hearing how other people are approaching it and also the energy that you all have to continue <laughs> to develop new ideas and keep going. And to Chris from Cloud Vision, thank you for uh, making sure we all get heard and out there as always. So to croissants and tea and coffee, thanks everyone so much. Thank